back and you're tuned in to Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins and I'm the host of the next hour of programming. This month on Energy Voices, we're going to take a deep dive in looking at an incredible startup called SunSaluter. We actually had the privilege of hosting Eden Full, the founder of SunSaluter, on a previous show. And this episode, we're going to re-air that interview and follow that up with an in-depth interview with Kabir Nadkarni, who recently spent three months working in Malawi implementing some of the projects from SunSaluter. It's a great full circle story as Kabir originally heard about SunSaluter by listening to the Energy Voices radio show. By giving him the opportunity to be introduced to Eden, he then followed up and was able to build his own internship to help launch this product in Malawi. We're also going to finish up this month's show with an interview with Dr. Joe Vipond, who's a physician who's working with the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment and working to eliminate coal-fired power and transition to pure, clean renewables in the province of Alberta. As always, you can follow along by using hashtag Energy Voices and download previous episodes by visiting bit.ly slash Energy Voices. Without further ado, here's this month's episode of Energy Voices. Again, here is a re-airing of a previous interview done with Eden Fole, the founder of Sun Saluter. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome Eden Fole to the show, who is simultaneously studying at Princeton, as well as running one of the most innovative young startups in the world of solar called Sun Saluter. So welcome to the show, Eden. Thanks so much for having me here. So first off, uh, tell us about yourself. Who, who are you? Uh, how did you start this business? And, and give us a little bit of the story of Eden, because it's quite a fascinating story. So I'm actually originally from Calgary. And, uh, you know, I'd been really interested in the field of solar energy since I was really young. Um, I started tinkering with solar panels when I was nine or 10. Uh, I'm 22 right now. Um, and I remember building a desktop solar car um, and just, you know, hooking it up to a motor and, and having a little solar panel and being really fascinated by um, just how it seemed like magic that it would just work. And I think the more I dived into, you know, figuring out more about solar and, you know, what, you know, what was efficient about it, what wasn't efficient, what were the limitations, I realized that there is definitely a problem where um, you're not getting enough electricity. So there's a lot of conventional research that has been done on tracking systems for solar panels, which rotate them so that they'll follow the sun at every point during the day. They are a very expensive technology, though. Um, they can cost upwards of $600 per solar panel, and they're not, you know, they're not really affordable. And there's definitely been a lot of issues with um, implementing them in the past. Um, tracking algorithms are are complicated, and you know, when the systems don't work and they fail after one to three years, when you know there's a, a guarantee on the solar panel for 25 years. Um, it just doesn't make very much economic sense to be installing these tracking systems. And so when I was in high school um, here in Calgary, I started dabbling with this idea of, you know, what if I could design a better, a more low cost um, and, and easily maintainable tracking system for solar panels? And uh, it started out as a science fair research project. Um, but over time, I started meeting people who told me, um, you know, there's a, a really strong application for what you're doing in developing a tracking system, um, you know, in the developing world, because they're starting to use more and more solar and 
there's more infrastructure for it. Um, you know, what if you try implementing it there? And, and what was unique about your tracking system as opposed to the $600 units that we typically see? So the very first prototype of the Sun Saluter uh, used bimetallic metals um, in order to rotate the solar panel. So it would heat up, you know, two types of metal, usually steel and aluminum, that were fused together. And then having these coils that were... Um, attached to a pivot point for the solar panel and at different times during the day these coils would displace and then it would cause the solar panel which was weighted on one side to rotate and you know in theory this was a great concept but um you know we don't really use bimetallic coils anymore <laughs> we haven't been doing that since the 80s when they were in your dishwasher door um and so it's uh it became apparent to me as I was deploying these systems that no one would have access to these bimetallic bi coils once uh, once I left. So what happens if they snap and break? Um, who's going to fix them? Does anyone even know what they are? Um, you know, there were a lot of issues around it. And, uh, you know, basically, I, I, I was accepted to Princeton, which is in New Jersey in the States, um, and I started studying mechanical engineering there. And uh, after my first year, I had a chance to, uh, I received a grant from Princeton to travel to Kenya and deploy one of these systems. Um, and that was when I think I really learned, you know, all about, you know, what it takes to implement a technology in the real world. You know, entirely before this, it all had, all had been just like prototypes made from materials I bought at Home Depot and then, mm -hmm. you know, like I built it in my basement and then put it in my backyard. Yeah. And... Um, you know, so this was a very different setting, and I got a lot of really great user feedback. I remember just, you know, the first week I was there, I, I spent a lot of time interviewing people who lived in the village, um, asking them what they used solar for, did they even know what solar was, did they know how it worked, um, and, you know, I got a lot of interesting um, feedback on just, you know, Things have to be really, really simple. Not everyone understands the premise of solar, uh, but they do understand the value of being able to charge their cell phones, being able to charge lanterns. Um, and, and so, you know, solar and, or electricity in general there obviously is, is, is very valuable. And if I can, you know, make something more efficient for them, if I can make their solar panel, you know, charge one extra cell phone every day, yeah, of course they'll be interested. Um, but I realized when I was deploying this first prototype over the next couple weeks after that was, yeah, I would try and introduce this idea of, you know, the bimetallic materials and like, you know, you have to maintain the solar panel. You have to make sure that it's, you know, protected from like, you know, cows and chickens and children and stuff. And like the system was not very it was not very durable. So um, I didn't factor any of those things in when I was uh, first implementing it. Hmm. And um, so I think after that first project, I realized I have to make my design a lot more child-proof, cow-proof, monkey-proof. Um, I have <laughs> Thing, to... Things you probably didn't think about in your backyard in Calgary. Is, exactly. What is the role of monkeys going to have <laughs> in my solar panel? Exactly. <laughs> so um, I really learned a lot from that. And, you know, they were very gracious about it. They were like, look, it's really nice that you want to help us, that you've created this design and uh, you've brought it here. But I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't think anything's going to come of it. Um, you're going to have to bring us something simpler. Like, this is just still too complicated. I don't even know what these things are. And so I went back to the drawing board after that. And, um, 
you know, I, I think it, 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 I, I, I really realized that, you know, what is the most dead simple way that I can rotate a solar panel? It doesn't, that's the only thing that needs to happen, right? So it doesn't matter what way I do it. Um, and I started brainstorming different ways that I could do that. And, um, you know, I, I started remembering back to just their lifestyle and, and what they have. Maybe there's a way that I can use existing materials that they have in order to, um, in order to rotate the panel. And I realized, um, you know, at about five or six o'clock in the morning, a lot of these villagers will wake up um, and they'll they'll get their jerry cans and they'll go to a well or a, a river close by and they'll fill up these jerry cans with water and then bring them back to their their hut and then just leave the jerry cans, you know, sitting there on the ground until they need to, to do something with them and cook at night or something. Mm-hmm. And so I realized, oh, well, if there's going to be this water lying around anyway, maybe there's a way that, you know, we can use this water to, to power the rotation of the solar panel um, because then that way water will always be there. I'll definitely know that it's a, a part of their lifestyle. And, you know, I'm not introducing something, you know, overly new uh, in, into just their daily daily habits. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, decided, I decided to start experimenting with building a solar tracker that, uh, that, that used uh, weight displacement from one side of the solar panel to the other um, in order to rotate a solar panel. Mm-hmm. And so this eventually became the design for Sun Saluter, where um, you'll mount a jerry can on the east side of the solar panel, and it'll have um, a precision spigot that will that you can calibrate over a couple days to really get this flow rate. And when you get a flow rate that matches, you know, um, about one drop every 15 seconds, which matches the rate at which the sun moves across the sky, you can have a jerry can that, with water that's slowly dripping out. And as that jerry can empties throughout the day, it'll allow um, the solar panel to get lighter on the east side. And I'm going to have a bag of rocks or some sort of counterweight on the west side of the solar panel. And so, you know, that's going to stay constant and as the west side of the solar panel continues to get heavier and heavier throughout the day then it'll allow the solar panel to rotate and uh, follow the sun Mm -hmm. and so this is a much simpler way of doing it than you know having some tracker tracking algorithm and a stepper motor and um, it's just it makes a lot more sense for you know anyone in the developing world because anyone can understand you know a simple balancing um you know, a balancing situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's just a lot more accessible to, to have, be using a local resource like water. Mm-hmm. And and the thing I love about it, we, we talk a lot on the show about the concept of legacy infrastructure and the fact that if we're going to transition to a more sustainable energy system, the, the easiest way to do that is to take advantage of the legacy infrastructure we have. Uh, mm-hmm. We were talking to some of the folks from the Carbon War Room and they've done some calculations that there's uh, somewhat over $2 trillion of legacy infrastructure for the fossil fuel industry between refineries and pipelines and gas stations and all of the infrastructure that we have to support that energy system. And so I find it fascinating that that exact same challenge of what infrastructure do I have? I have uh, pop bottles and jerry cans that I can use to, to bring water. How do I use that to make solar more efficient? And so uh, I just want to commend you on how ingenious I think that solution ended up being. Thanks. Um, I mean, I think it's it's definitely interesting, but I think human centered design is is just such an important element. And it's interesting that you you mentioned legacy infrastructure just being a, a, a problem, and in, in, in no matter where you go, it's an engineering problem. And uh, you know, it's up to up to engineers and up to you know makers and designers to to figure out creative ways to to work around that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think. Um, really looking in their environment and understanding, you know, 
what is the bare minimum that they understand based on their educational background and their socioeconomic background and just, you know, culture. And it, it's, it's not easy to do that just by, you know, flying in and then just expecting that you're going to get a really good picture of what things are like in like a week. Like you really do have to be there day in and day out for months at a time to, to understand and to be able to actually create something that's relevant. And so we've sort of talked about the the genesis story and the formation of Sun Saluter, um, but what have been some of the challenges that you've run into there? Uh, I spent a little bit of time in Nairobi, and I found that there were there's dozens and dozens of solar based startups that are all working on sort of slightly different niches or slightly different mm-hmm. uh, activities there. And so, what is what are the barriers between from Sun Saluter today and scaling so that this is a scalable solution in the developing world? How how do you get from here to there? So Sun Saluter is a technology that um, can complement any existing solar infrastructure. Mm. And um, that means that we're not in direct competition with a lot of these other startups. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's our goal is we want to piggyback on top of the work that other people are doing and be like, hey, we know you're deploying solar panels, you know, a couple kilowatts here and there. What if we can make your panels, you know, 30 to 40 percent more efficient for the uh, for cost that is cheaper than, um, you know, buying another 30 to 40 percent of a solar panel. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the economic value of solar tracking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think in scaling up some of the issues that we have encountered is just there is in general not an awareness that you can rotate solar panels and they'll generate more electricity like that yeah. just isn't common knowledge, which you know, if we, if I, once I've explained it to someone, they're like, oh, duh, that makes total sense. But like, Mm -hmm. until you've done that, I think talking to some of our end users and, and engaging them um, and and getting them excited about, you know, what does 30 to 40% more electricity actually mean for me in my life? Mm -hmm. It it can be a little hard to articulate that. And so I think in terms of scale, uh, when we're trying to you know, build um, a, a larger customer base, it, 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 it can be hard just because people people don't immediately see the value. Um, 30 to 40 percent is, is I think, a little intangible until they've actually seen the comparison of mm-hmm. this is my solar panel without a tracker and this is my solar panel with sun saluter mounted on it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think what we do is we try to focus on um, our, our, our core customers are, are more um, like uh, other businesses, other integrators, um, nonprofits, mm-hmm. NGOs that are implementing solar systems in the developing world. We're currently primarily focused in India, although we do have um, over 100 units that have been deployed in 12 different countries so far. Mm-hmm. But those, uh, a lot of those are, um, you know, one-off customers that have just been really excited about what we do. Piloting it. Uh, yeah, exactly. It um, but I think our core focus and where we are, um, our manufacturing headquarters and operations are based in Bangalore, India. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have some really trustworthy, really amazing partners that have we've been working with there. And what we've been focused on doing is really trying to put them in the best possible position to succeed and, and making sure that we provide them with the support that they need. Um, but we eventually do want to make this a very local operation. Mm-hmm. And I want to jump back a little bit to the conversation about uh, sort of the education aspect of mm-hmm. making people understand that facing your your solar panel to the sun makes a big difference. And and how do you how do you do that education work? And how and the second question there as well is, do people uh, how do people 
maximize efficiency as it is? Do people know that they're not getting the full power out of their solar panel? Uh, just that idea of you don't know what you don't know is, is really fascinating. And so I just wanted to get a sense of how you're overcoming that barrier on the ground. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the way that we articulate this imp the, the impact that Sunsluter has does vary depending on our audience. You know, there's obviously uh, some people who are more quantitative who care about seeing the exact data. And we have a lot of data logged um, from just our pilots in the field in Bangalore and in a variety of other areas that we can show um, to, to be like, here is 30 to 40 percent more electricity. You know, on, on a really good day, you're getting up to 40 percent. On a maybe a cloudier day, you're getting 25 to 30 percent. And, uh, you know, we've we've kind of covered our bases in, in that regard. You know, some people, especially our end users, they'll care more about, you know, this, how many extra cell phones can I charge? How many extra lanterns? And then to, so to really prove it to them, it's it's more about just actually literally going there and making that comparison and setting up one solar panel with it and one solar panel without. And so... You know, that seems to be the best way to, to really sell it to people. I think mm -hmm. once they see that impact and, you know, we're continuing to find different ways of articulating what does that extra electricity mean? And it means so many different things for different people. So mm -hmm. um, it's it's definitely a work in progress still. Um, and, and I think uh, we're, we're, we're always realizing that, you know, I think there are we need to have different ways of, of, of articulating and, and having evidence of, of just the impact that we want to have. Mm -hmm. And you've touched a little bit on sort of where you're at as far as some of the future growth plans, as far mm -hmm. as having a manufacturing facility in Bangalore and, and focusing on that market right now. But uh, maybe articulate for us, what is the, the three-year vision and what do you see as being the big roadblocks in, in achieving that vision? So for the remainder of 2014 and 2015, I think Sunsluter will be primarily focused on our operations in India. We just recently received a grant from the Climate Group um, to pilot uh, a new. Uh, we have we're developing a new product line um, of of using an uh, of a, of a Sunsluter that will be a little more automatic. So it'll have a small DC water pump that will assist with the process. Um, and I think we're going to use the Climate Group money um, in order to, to pilot that product line. We're going to continue to build out our Bangalore operations, um, and we're also expanding into northern India as well. So we, uh, on my last recent trip, I just came back from uh, Delhi last week. And, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of partners that are very excited about working with us. So we're going to focus our efforts um, for the next year, year and a half, maybe two years on India. Um, we do have a couple of other org um, organizations in other countries that are interested in setting up a very similar um, um, model in, in their country. And uh, specifically in Malawi, I think, is our next strongest lead. Mm -hmm. And so um, that will also be an interesting challenge. But I think we're going to, over the next year and a half, identify uh, partners in other countries that we want to scale to and then pick countries that are, are really strong candidates based on just what's available there and, uh, you know, if we can find trustworthy people mm -hmm. um so that'll be probably um you know 20 2016 2017 will be scaling into um a few other countries and i'd like to think that there will be some sort of exponential growth as mm -hmm. we identify what works and what doesn't work and, so and in between you'll be finishing university correct yes yeah, so i will be graduating <laughs> with a degree in mechanical engineering hopefully uh, i don't want to jinx anything yeah. um in june of 2015 Perfect. Uh, well, that's all the questions that we had for you today. I think this was fascinating for our listeners just to hear somebody 
who is walking the walk and is is working on an innovative solution, but on the deployment of that solution that mm -hmm. I think sometimes people get caught up in the theoretical conversations about what is the potential or, or where was the research. And, and I think it's a really powerful case study to our, our members and our listeners that just diving in and getting your hands dirty and playing mm -hmm. around in your backyard and then realizing you need to worry about monkeys and cows and children <laughs> is really valuable. So we, we wish you the best of luck and we appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Next up on Energy Voices, we've got Kabir Nadkarni, who's recently completed a three-month internship with Sun Saluder in Malawi. To follow up on the interview with Eden Full, I'm really excited to welcome Kabir Nadkarni to the show, who recently completed an 11-week internship with Sun Saluder. So welcome to the show, Kabir. Thanks, Sean. So I, I know you're in your second year student in engineering physics at the University of Alberta, and you've been part of the student energy family for a little bit of time now. Uh, and it sounds like you had a pretty incredible summer. Yeah, yeah, it was it was quite the crazy summer. So I wanted to have you on the show um, as a follow-up to the interview and, and the, the content that we've gotten out of Eden so far, but really to explore um, what it's like to have a summer as a, as a young student who's passionate about sustainable energy um, and how you can really take advantage of that time off between your studies. Um, so maybe at the high level, um, give us the, the Coles notes on, on what did this summer look like for Kabir? Okay. Um, so this summer I was doing an 11 week internship, like you said, uh, with Sun Saluder. Um, and I was located in Malawi, which is in East Africa. Um, Malawi is a country where 90% of the country's population has no access to electricity and 40% of the people in the country also don't have access to clean drinking water. Um, so the Sun Saluder, um, as Eden had said before, uh, is, uh, the only solar panel tracker made for the developing world. Um, and it essentially uses a very interesting gravity-powered mechanism that is very simplistic to use, um, and it increases the output, the energy output of the panel by 30%, while also creating four liters of clean drinking water with a filter, filter system. Mm -hmm. And so we get asked this question a lot uh, from students who are interested in saying, I want to get into sustainable energy, uh, I'm really passionate about these sorts of topics, and they're sort of looking for an answer as far as something that they can do. And so... How did you go from being a student in Edmonton, Alberta, um, a jurisdiction that has very little in the way of significant developments to do with renewable energy? How did you go from that in your first year of university to winding up in rural Malawi working on solar tracking systems? Um, to be completely honest, I think I kind of just invented my internship. Um, and so I've known Eden for the past uh, year, I guess. Um, and it's through sort of through student energy, through the interview that you guys had with her is where I found out about Sun Saluter. But I'd also known her through a friend of ours who five years ago, they'd gone to the Canada Wide Science Fair together. Um, and I think it's just kind of this community called Science Expo that I'm involved in, um, where we just know awesome people all over the country. And, you know, when we say, hey, I'm looking for some sort of job in this science related field, um, there is for sure someone in the community who can help you out. Yeah. Um, and so through that and through the uh, through Eden's interview with uh, with the Energy Voices show, um, I found out about it and I emailed her and we created an internship. Yeah. 
And, and and what was the what was the content of your first email to Eden? Did you pitch it right away? Did you try to develop a relationship, or did you just dive right in and say you want a job in Malawi? Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that when I first approached Eden, I didn't even know about Sunsluder at all, um, mm-hmm. just because I, I was just interested in kind of whether she knew people because I just moved to Alberta this past year and I wanted her to introduce me to some people around here, um, and so. And then in her email, in her signature, she had information about Sunsluder. And I think six months later, when I was actually looking for an internship, I said, oh, wait, I know this person named Eden um, who works for this related kind of, uh, yeah, related company. So I, I approached her about it. And the next thing you knew, I had an internship. Yeah. And so walk us through. So you had uh, an 11-week internship in Malawi with Sunsluder. Um, but what does that mean? So so. During your time there, uh, what were you doing? Walk us through maybe a typical day for for the time that you spent down there. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sunsluder has some operations all over the world. They've done a lot in India. Um, in fact, they have some major, major developments and they have their own kind of manufacturing facilities in India mm-hmm. um, just because of the amount of projects that they've gotten there. Um, but they haven't really done all that much work in East Africa before, apart from a few individual sales. They didn't ever have their own distribution system there. Um, and I think for this entire time, they were kind of just looking for a local entrepreneur to take to take charge of uh, the distribution system locally, mm-hmm. um, because they believe it's better to do it local as opposed to um, from an external perspective. Um, and so I think they just found a local distributor named Recapo Solar Systems, um, I think six months ago. And, um, and sorry, Recapo, they're they're they are in the business of the panel manufacturing and installation. Um, just installation, yes. Okay. So they, apart from the Sun Saluter, they work with a few other products, yeah. um, such as the Indigo um, system, which is okay. very low output. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because the it's definitely a, an interesting aspect of Sun Saluter in the fact that it's almost like the Intel inside, where it's a product for a product that. A sun saluter in isolation doesn't really do anything. It needs to be working with that solar panel partner. So, okay. So we've got you. So Recapo set up as the as the partner. And so how do you sort of snap into this equation? Mm-hmm. Um, so since Recapo decided to partner with Sun Saluter, I think they were just looking for someone with very little experience to kind of take control of this the Sun Saluter project. Um, and this is kind of one challenge in Malawi that I found that I was there. It's very hard to connect with people and um, to find people with the right kind of skills and so on. Um, and I, I said I could work for free, so that was probably the reason <laughs> as to why they hired me. Yeah. Um, but basically, my my job entailed really kind of kickstarting a lot of their work there, um, building a prototype for kind of the local needs um, as opposed to the one that they use in India because the needs are slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say those are if you were to summarize just quickly? Okay. Um, so a lot of the houses, I, I think it, the, the operations that they do in India, a lot of the houses have flat roofs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it becomes very simple to kind of just put a, put a sun saluter mounted on top. Um, but in Malawi, since all the roofs are, roofs are slanted, it becomes very difficult to do that. And mm-hmm. so you have to kind of have a system kind of built on the ground. But the problem with that is that a lot of people locally were afraid that it would get stolen by a passerby. And so I had to build a system that could be kind of cemented into the ground and hoisted uh, very high up so that no passerby could just take it and go. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it needed to be adjustable. So I had to make it kind of be able to go up and down and lock it in place and so on. And I would assume there's some, uh, for especially the clean water input, that there needs to be some sort of 
mm-hmm. interaction with the system as well. So yeah, yeah, exactly. In the in the beginning of the day, um, so Sunsluter has a few different models. Uh, the ones that I was working with were more so the DIY ones, in which um, every morning the user has to kind of add some water in. There are models that are automatic, and they do that on their own with an automatic pump. But mm-hmm. yeah, cool. Um, and so. So you said you had to sort of come up with the actual uh, idea itself and, and was a lot of it just then doing the installations of these or sort of what were some of your additional responsibilities mm-hmm. while you're down there? Um, so it's funny because I thought I, when I was there, I, well, well, before I got there, I thought what I was going to be doing was building these systems and selling them to a lot of people. But then I got there and then I realized that our office itself doesn't have electricity. And so <laughs> here I am. Kind of ironic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I get there and I realize that our office doesn't have electricity. Um, and the next thing you know, I'm building a prototype that we can kind of showcase to all of our customers at our office. And at the same time, kind of in- increasing um, the efficiency and the productivity of the office by, you know, like bringing an electricity system. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the things that I did. Um, apart from that, I also had to kind of find a local distributor of the, the water filters that are compatible with the Sun Saluter system. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, because as opposed to importing all the way from India, we wanted to find someone who could do it locally just for lower costs and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then apart from that, a lot of also sales generation. And, um, and I wouldn't even call it sales because the approach that we used was that we would go to potential customers and we'd ask them what their needs were. Mm-hmm. And we'd kind of just have an energy audit questionnaire in which they'd say, I want 10 light bulbs, you know, like one TV, for example, a couple radio systems, a couple phone charging stations and so on and mm-hmm. create kind of um, a product for them based on those needs. And and would the, and I'm assuming this is also working with Recapo, the mm-hmm. solar partner. So how would you handle the, the financing and acquisition of those sorts of products? Um, so Recapo is, um, it's, a for, it's a for-profit kind of business that has been initiated. Um, they've been working in the field of uh, solar electricity in Malawi for the past, I think, two or three years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've gotten a lot of funding from the USADF, from the UNDP, and so on um, for a lot of their work. Um, and what they do differently compared to a lot of other solar distributors um, is that they have a pay-as-you-go model. Um, and so one thing in Malawi is that a lot of people, especially um, the kinds of people that we were targeting, don't have enough savings to buy a full-fledged solar panel system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Recapo was able to kind of loan them these systems and they would pay them over the course of the next year. And then once it was paid out, it would just be free to use mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the traditional uh, grid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what what were some of the challenges that you ran into? So I know you weren't there for uh, a huge period of time, mm-hmm. but in the time that you got to spend there, what were some of the roadblocks that you ran into during your internship? Hmm. I think one of the big challenges for me personally was that um, going in there, I'd really kind of overestimated um, the amount of work that I would be doing um, and overestimated, I guess, also just the needs that needed to be fulfilled. Um, and then I got there and I kind of saw this perspective of how people don't need, you know, like more than a hundred watts of electricity for a day mm-hmm. or, you know, like for five or, or for eight or nine hours per day. Um, and it was just mind boggling how how different, I guess, uh, the traditional needs here are compared to there. And um, a system such as the Sunsluter system was so beneficial um, and easy. I mean, it was affordable as well. And um, so that's one thing I guess I learned there. Um, and apart from that, I think I learned a whole lot um, 
that I wouldn't have learned in school regarding um, kind of just personal development and professional development um, just by working in an entrepreneurial setting with very low resources and so on Mm -hmm. in which I mean I had to bring electricity to my office I had to you know build the capacity of local um, technicians so that they could continue doing the work that I was doing before I left Mm -hmm. Um, and so on so I think um, yeah, I, I think I learned a lot about myself just through the experience and I wouldn't never have been able to learn a lot of that in school. Yeah. So, and, and any outcomes for you? Is this something that you are interested in the space long term or sort of any outcomes of spending uh, three months working in East Africa? Yeah. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of outcomes for um, an editor such as me <laughs> um, going to work uh, in a developmental setting. Um, and I mean, I, I think just through the experience of having lived in Malawi and having worked, uh, with a company so, so great as Sunsaluter, um, I think I've been able to generate a lot more entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial ideas. Um, and I mean, I, I think I would never have been exposed to a lot of that in school through a textbook. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of the learning that I've realized, um, for me happens through one-on-one interaction and through experiencing life in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of students overestimate how much classroom education can provide. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot of education just happens on the fly in life. Yeah. I, uh, I mentioned it on a previous show, but I, I've had the privilege of traveling through Malawi as well. Mm-hmm. This was more just to visit friends. Um, but one of the takeaways that I had uh, in traveling to Malawi and that I've had in other countries is is just how different it is. And that sounds like a very sort of cliched answer, but it, it's what works in India doesn't work in Malawi. What works in Canada doesn't work in Malawi. And, and oftentimes it's hard to describe why. And one of the stories I try to tell people to offer a bit of perspective was um, one of our really good friends, Jolly, she was working for UNICEF and she was doing a lot of uh, field surveys around uh, health in, in rural Malawi. And there was one day that um, we were just hanging out in the capital in the long way and she was going to be going out to a village to do some surveys. And about an hour later, she calls us and says that she can't go out to the field anymore and that we could then sort of hang out with her that day. And we asked her why she wasn't able to go. And she was saying that their driver that they hire to drive them out to the village, he had run out of minutes on his phone and then they couldn't get in contact with him. And there was no one else that's available to drive, so they just couldn't go out to the village. So they just couldn't do an entire day's worth of work. And I just thought how different that was, that that would never, ever happen in Canada, that there's just never the fact that you just simply can't get in touch with somebody or you can't do something. And so for her, it's basically, and then the next day where she'd planned to do all of the sort of summary and and data entry of her data is sort of two full days of work that are gone because somebody didn't have enough minutes on their phone. And so it's just a different reality that I don't think we're used to here. And and when you experience that perspective and that context, I think it just gives you a much greater understanding for what the real world challenges are. And, and to your point, like, what do people actually need? What are they actually going to you make use of? And it's just until you experience that yourself, it's really easy to have sort of altered perspectives on what the reality is like on the ground. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, relating that back to kind of the topic of renewable energy. Yeah. Um, so in in Canada, and I think in most of the West, I think we um, a big challenge for the renewable energy industry is the pre-established kind of econ- economies of scale, right? That happens with the pre-existing energy industry. 
Um, whereas in Malawi, um, they've done this with telecommunications before in all of uh, East Africa and I would say the rest of Africa as well. Um, where, I mean, we had telephone lines um, in North America for so long and so it took a lot longer for people to um, kind of adopt the mobile phone system. Yeah. Whereas in Africa, a lot of what's happened is a leapfrogging in which people never use telephones mm -hmm. and landlines. They just use mobile phones right away. Um, and I see a very similar kind of perspective with the energy industry as well. Um, so in Malawi, um, a big reason as to why those 90% of the country's population don't have access to electricity is because the government can't afford to build the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, and so having a distributed solar model makes a lot more sense. Um, and so I think... I, I think the renewable energy industry, that's another really cool thing that I've learned, which makes me very optimistic for development in Africa, mm -hmm. is that the renewable energy industry can leapfrog the traditional energy industry there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a bigger challenge. That's going to be a much bigger challenge in the developed world already. Yeah. And it's there's there's obvious pros and cons to both that uh, you, you listed off some of the, the pros that you can leapfrog. You don't have any legacy infrastructure. Um, so you're not incurring the multi-billion dollar costs of transmission and distribution lines and solving last mile to homes. But then at the same point in time, there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of different company solutions, technologies scattered across the entire continent. And so when it comes to that sort of efficiency that most people don't think about that fact that now you need to find a water filter distributor in the long way to, and because your existing manufacturing plant is in India, that's just a challenge that doesn't really come when you just have massive centralized grids in developing world because it's everything's the same or it's run by a single company or you can buy your power from two people and that's your choice. So it's definitely interesting. Um, do you have any thoughts as to uh, are there any use cases that you see for the traditional grid in, in East Africa? Do you see, do you see it being uh, something that works in complement to decentralized energy or do you see it being uh, much more of a push to decentralized energy? Um, I, I think I definitely see it um, as a complement um, yeah. to the pre-existing system. Um, and I, I see it as a complement, I think, to the traditional energy system just because um, the energy system, the traditional grid that they have in most of the long way in Malawi um, have a lot of limitations. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, on one of the last days of my internship, um, a few of my colleagues and I had gone and made a presentation to um, the equivalent of the Longway City Council. Mm -hmm. um, and we pretty much presented our idea of Sun Saluter and some of the other, other products that Recapo Solar Systems offers. Mm -hmm. um, and they were so impressed that they decided um, that they'd be interested in partnering with us, perhaps, um, for a development of uh, 100 new households that currently don't, the plan didn't include electricity access. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I definitely see it as a huge complement to um, kind of how the energy system there functions. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I think the sun saluter system, as well as all the other solar panel systems, the distributed ones have a lot to offer to the country, which, you know, that can't afford other 
traditional models. Yeah, which is interesting because then it opens up a different conversation around um, development. That if there's a, if you want to do a quote unquote suburb a little bit outside the traditional city, instead of having to run lines out there, you can mm-hmm. you have this distributed system. So that's really interesting. Um, and so for anyone that's interested in learning a bit more about your guys' work uh, at Sun Salute or where can, where can they check that out? Um, you can go to Sun Sluter's Facebook page. Um, you can definitely also go to the website, which is www.sunsluter.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there are a ton of energy nerds like uh, Eden and myself, I would say, who would be more than happy to talk to you about it. Perfect. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit uh, and ask you as well about your experience in attending your first ever International Student Energy Summit. So, um, I've now been to, I think, six major conferences that we've done at Student Energy. Uh, And so I'm very curious to hear your perspective on attending uh, the International Student Energy Summit in Bali, Indonesia this year. Um, So so maybe I'll put you on the spot first and foremost. Um, Describe in your words what the International Student Energy Summit is to someone who might not know. Okay. Um, So the International Student Energy Summit is... Uh, a collection, or it's a conference that happens every two years uh, in a different country. So two years ago, it happened in Norway. This year, it was happening in Indonesia. Um, It pretty much brings together um, students from all over the world at all different kind of backgrounds and disciplines and ages, so on, um, interested in the topic of energy um, and looking at how the energy systems around the world function. and it unites them and it kind of uh, allows them access to some wonderful speakers, once again, from all around the world, from fantastic institutions and um, think tanks and companies and so on. Um, and this year, the theme at the International Student Energy Summit was connecting the unconnected, which was once again, very relevant to my internship in Malawi. Um, mm-hmm. And so... I was very, very happy to go there, and I think I had I, I'd gone there pretty early in the middle of my internship, and so returning to Malawi with this new perspective allowed me, I think, to do a much better job. And and what what hooked you originally that made you want to attend the International Student Energy Summit? Um, you telling me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. We, Kaylee and Janice and I we always say we're always always trying to sell students that it's one of the best things they can do if they're interested in energy. So mm-hmm. I'm glad the sales job works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I mean, my university helping me, um, my university's engineering student society actually funded a large part of my trip. Awesome. Um, and that would have probably been very hard to make if it hadn't been for their support. So yeah. very happy, very happy to have their support on yeah. that. And uh, who's the most interesting student that you met there? Who was the most interesting other youth or student that you got a chance to connect with on site and maybe a bit about them? Yeah. Um, so I made one really, really good friend. His name is Kevin Florentine, and he's a delegate from uh, the Philippines. Okay. Uh, and he studies at the University of Philippines. I think he's graduating this coming year uh, with, a, um, with a degree in um, public administration. Yeah. Um, and he's very interested um, in the idea of or in in the topic of urban development and municipal development. Um, And I was kind of very interested in that here in Edmonton as well, since there's a lot of um, new developments happening here. Um, And we were both interested in the topics of energy and sustainability and how those play a role uh, in urban development. And so ever since then, we've just been kind of working together on things and sharing ideas and so on. And it's been very nice meeting people like that. And what about a speaker? Was there a particular speaker or talk that really stuck out to you? 
Um, yeah, so once again, I think um, with the topic of urban development here in Edmonton and where the city is going, um, I was very interested in this idea of smart cities. Mm -hmm. um, and so during this, I, I think there was a parallel session called Smart Cities, and I met someone from um, the Amsterdam Smart City Initiative. Um, and I was very impressed by kind of all these local initiatives that they've done um, as, I would say, definitely a scientific geared community or an engineering geared community and I was very impressed to see the impact that they were having on their city locally mm -hmm. um, and so I've been in touch with them as well and hopefully I can bring some of their ideas here to Edmonton yeah well it certainly sounds like you had an incredible summer uh, what's what's next on the agenda for you though are you gonna be able to top this in your summer after your second <laughs> university um, so one thing for me I, I realized from the energy perspective is that there's so many different kind of angles that you need to look at this topic at, not only from the engineering perspective, not only from the business perspective and the entrepreneurial perspective, which is, I think, what I covered um, this past summer, but also from the policy perspective and also from the research perspective and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and so over my next four years of undergraduate studies, I want to look at the topic of energy from all of these different angles and kind of really make up my mind that way. Yeah. But. Perfect. Well, we're, we're happy to have you as part of the Student Energy family, and uh, we can't wait to hear what else is in store for you. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next up on Energy Voices, we've got Dr. Joe Vipond, who's an emergency physician in Calgary and a member of the Canadian Associations of Physicians for the Environment. So welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you. So I was really intrigued to have you on the show when uh, I read an article that was written in the Edmonton Journal where uh, it was a really articulate uh, overview of the, the need to really take a long-term viewpoint on what how the electricity system and the energy system in Alberta is structured, um, and in particular sort of focused on the idea of if we're moving away from coal, do we go to natural gas or move straight to a renewable, low-carbon, zero-emission uh, environment? And the thing that really struck me was that at the end of the, the, the article, um, that you would have thought was written by someone from the electricity system or somebody uh, with an, an energy or electricity background. Uh, it, it had that this was that you were a doctor and that you 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 were an emergency physician, and I found that really intriguing. And so I, I wanted to just have you on the show to to ask you uh, and to share with our viewers what is the physician's viewpoint on climate change, uh, and, and why is this an issue that is so that you're so passionate about. Great. Well, uh, if you actually look at the medical liter literature, it's rife with people writing articles and, and medical organizations urging physicians to do more. Uh, you can look at the, the Lancet, the BMJ, the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and all of the organizations that are behind those, like the British Medical Association and the Canadian Medical Association. They all have position papers saying that this is a major health care issue and that Physicians need to start speaking up on this um, because it's coming down the pipe that we're going to have medical problems related to climate change, whether it be disasters or uh, change in disease patterns or even things like starvation and, and increase in poverty. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of our roles as physicians to be advocates, and there is no bigger advocacy issue than than climate change. And, and and so you brought up some of the the 
these issues such as sort of natural disasters and, and the spreading of diseases. Um, are, are there any, is there anything more tangible in, uh, in North America or sort of in a jurisdiction like Alberta? We're, we're a jurisdiction where um, we're not going to see the effects of uh, overland flooding to the degree that you're going to see in sort of areas that can be hit by hurricanes and hit by typhoons. Um, what, what do you see as those, the, the health issues that are going to affect people who are living in the prairies in Alberta, far away from some of the sort of typical natural disasters? We don't have to look in the future. It's already happening. Now look at the, uh, the, the, the forest fires that are happening in Northern Alberta, Saskatchewan and throughout BC. Uh, the amount of smoke that's being put out, by these and, and enveloping urban regions is causing respiratory illness. Um, and this is only going to get worse. And then droughts that are kind of moving from place to place. So, you know, five years ago we had a Midwest drought, then four years ago it moved to California, and California is still in the depths of a massive drought. And then more recently it's moved up into uh, BC and into central Alberta. And so that's affecting our farmers, affecting their livelihood, and, and, uh, and the, the ecosystem that are uh, supported by by healthy water um, and then finally it's it's you know I live in Calgary I live in a in, in the floodplain in Hillerst and we had in 2013 a, a major overland flood yeah. um, which uh, you know, lucky for me spared my my house but you know caught I think a, a billion dollar wise was the, the most expensive natural disaster in Canadian history um, Fortunately, there weren't a lot of health effects from that specific one, but certainly a lot of financial effects. And some of those financial effects translate into health effects when it comes to, you know, being able to put food on the table because you have have money. If you lose a lot of money through one of these events, you're going to uh, the, the poverty that's associated with that. It translates itself into health effects. So this isn't a future problem. This isn't a, a now problem. And uh, we need to get on this sooner rather than later to mitigate some of the more severe effects that could come down the pipe. Yeah, and and one of the things that's always really intrigued me about the the sort of health argument around climate change um, relates back to the success story of sort of rallying global action uh, around the hole in the ozone layer. That was that was a, an issue that it was clearly identified that it was a man-made cause that we were creating a hole in the ozone layer. Um, and, and sort of what those causes were. But really, at the end of the day, it was the, 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 the tangible argument of the hole in the ozone layer is going to make it more likely that your kids get skin cancer. And, and, and that was one of those issues that I think that there was a fairly direct correlation um, between the, the man-made cause and the sort of individual level impact that that could have. Do you, do you find that there's hesitation or there's resistance because even as you've just described, there's dozens of potential health impacts from climate change? When you when you put the damages that can come from climate change into a story type uh, scenario, so of individuals being affected, of families being affected, it resonates more than just saying there's a drought in BC. So if you say that there's a a farm with an orchard whose trees aren't producing, and now this farmer doesn't know where his food's going to come on the table in in September. Um, that resonates more than just a random statement that there's a drought in BC. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the challenges that we face as communicators communicators on this issue is to balance that uh, overwhelming um, sense of, of change that's coming and putting it into kind of an individual, well, if we make some concrete changes, we can affect some concrete improvements in people's lives. Mm-hmm. 
And and one of the that makes sense. yeah, absolutely. And and one of the 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 aspects that I wanted to get a little bit more clarity from you on. Um, we hear a lot in in the conversation around climate change, around sort of fine particulate matter. When uh, when we hear about the sort of pollution and smog issues in in China, we often hear about the sort of increased levels of fine particulate matter. But I don't feel like a lot of work has been uh, done to sort of communicate to people what does that mean. So if there's from from a health perspective and from a physician's perspective, if there's a, a massive spike in fine particulate matter as a result of sort of pollution and climate change and emissions, what, how can that affect people, and and what are those direct effects that people uh, could expect? Yeah. So one of the problems that we have is jargon, right? So fine particulate matter two point five is a is a big mouth mouthful. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it's important to recognize that the, the fine particulate matter can be related to climate change, but can also just be related to burning fossil fuels. So they're not necessarily hand in hand. We, when we talk about getting rid of coal-fired power in the province, we say we can get it, uh, get improvements both in uh, health effects of, of the air pollution and as well as climate change, because they're kind of separate. So you're burning, you're burning the fuel, you're creating pollutants, but you're also creating CO2, and they have different effects. So the fine particulate matter, the, the air pollution effects are immediate. The climate change effects are coming down the road and are more global. Mm -hmm. So let's talk quickly about fine particulate matter. When you burn anything, it creates little tiny particles, and those particles can, uh, uh, can be sized differently. So uh, anything over what we call 10 microns, PM2.5, they tend to deposit in the, in the lungs and have, have effects that way. And when you get even smaller, so less than 2.5 microns, these tiny particles can actually be absorbed into the blood, bloodstream and have more systemic effects. So there is, there is a ton of, of scientific literature on the very fine particulate matter and its effects on people's health. And even more specifically, we can go right to mortality. So there, we know that as PM2.5 goes up, more people die. And it's not that they were about to die and they just die a little sooner. It's that they, uh, the mortality in the region goes, goes up. So generally the more susceptible people in the population, so elderly, people with pre-existing uh, uh, pre conditions like emphysema or asthma, um, cardiac events, uh, heart attacks. And the end result of a lot of these disease processes is death. And so as, these, as the pollutant levels go up, these events go up. And, and you know, in China, these levels are astronomical, getting up to like 800 uh, micrograms um, per meter cubed. And in Alberta, it's, you know, we, we still have a problem. It's still above the international guidelines, but we're more around the 30 zone, especially on these winter days when you get inversions and, and, uh, and low air speeds. And so that's, that's from the coal-fired power perspective, that's what we're really concerned is about these winter events. So one question I have to ask, Joe, is, is as uh, an emergency physician, why is it important that you're writing uh, these sorts of articles about the, the role of transitioning to a renewable future? Why is your position and, and the role as a physician important for that? So I initially got involved in the coal-fired uh, power uh, topic because of the concern about the air pollutants that were coming out the stacks. And, and, and as you learn about the air pollutants, you learn that one of those big 
pollutants is CO2, and CO2, as, as you know, is the, one of the major issues with climate change. So we really have a sense now that we're on the cusp of, of uh, a victory and that we're going to have some of these coal-fired power plants shut down, hopefully all of them by 2030. But if we're going to do that, we have to figure out where our electricity is going to come from. So there's been a lot of talk about natural gas being the, the automatic go-to. And um, so now that we've let this genie out of the bottle, we have to ask ourselves, uh, well, is that really where we want to go to? We already have a lot of natural gas generation in the province. Do we want even more or do we want to look at other options? And, you know, we have, we're the only jurisdiction in North America without an energy efficiency plan. We can actually do the equivalent of about uh, four to six plants, um, remove all of those coal plants offline by 2030, just by implementing some stringent energy efficiency plans. Um, and we also have no renewable energy uh, framework, no, no way of looking at renewable energy in this province. We're the only one in, in, in Canada, the only province in Canada without this. So the idea is if, if we're going to do this for air pollutants sake, get rid of coal-fired power plants, let's also look at the climate change repercussions of our generation system and consider other options in natural gas and let's develop some targets for nat uh, for energy efficiency and renewables factor that into our modeling and then look at what natural gas we need right now we're just kind of going randomly whoever can build the plants fastest is going to uh, be producing our electricity and that in this day and age where we're looking down the pipe at at civilization disrupting climate change, we need to be more thoughtful about where we're going. Yeah, and especially the fact that uh, you mentioned that it's sort of an inevitability that we're transitioning away from coal fire power. But whatever we decide next, that's sort of a minimum of a 25 to 30 year uh, decision that if we decide to build a, a huge amount of natural gas power, um, that that's the power source for the next 30 years. The, the, the economics and the, the sort of technological lifespans of these projects are decades, they're not years. And so um, I think it's important to bring up these conversations because what decisions we make in the next two to three years will affect us for 30 to 40 years in the future. And even more uh, to the point for the utility perspective, we don't want to be having this conversation again in 15 years saying, well, we got to get rid of all of our natural gas plants and therefore the utilities uh, lose out. Yeah. Well, well, I, I know you, you've got to run, Joe, and uh, I, we appreciate the time that you're spending with us before uh, taking a shift as an emergency physician. Uh, it's not often that we get the chance to interview people before they're, they're doing work quite as important uh, as what you're doing. So, um, I just appreciate the time you took to to share a bit of the details on on why the health impacts of climate change are real and and why they're um, affecting us immediately. Um, and and as more research comes out and as more sort of discussion around this topic comes up, we'd love to have you on a future show. That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai Sinclair with production assistance from Chris Changian Phillips. Energy Voices is supported by Bullfrog Power and their Student Life Initiative. You can learn more by visiting bullfrogpower.ca slash studentlife. 
all previous episodes of Energy Voices can be streamed at bit.ly slash energyvoices or by searching for Energy Voices in iTunes or your favorite podcast service. <laughs>